Um, this morning, uh, we'll be in uh, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 2. That's where our reading will come from. Uh, we're actually going to finish up 1 and 2 Samuel. We'll be at the very end. Uh, but it seemed fitting to kind of come back uh, to the, uh, the beginning here. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 10, is the song of Hannah. Um, and she was, she was barren. She was ridiculed for that. Uh, and God came and delivered her. And from that, she sings this song. And I, I want to read it too because when we come to the end, we're going to see echoes of this song even at the end. And it's a really beautiful way to kind of tie up First and Second Samuel. Um, so let's read together First uh, uh, Samuel starting in chapter 2. Um, the words will be on the screen behind me. You can f- follow along. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There's none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There's no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. <clears throat> the Lord kills and brings to life. He raises down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by my might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is the word of the Lord. You may may be seated. I'll I'll never forget the time I first got to visit uh, Colorado. Uh, So, so beautiful. I mean, I could describe uh, even the drive there, and I got to go on on so many hikes, and and the scenery was just captivating. Um, Definitely made me wonder why I live here. because I love you guys, that's why. Um, among the many vivid experiences I could recount, I remember in particular um, hiking to the peak of, of Mount Sherman with some friends. This is a 14,000-foot mountain. We got to the top and looked out. A sense of, of awe and wonder just swept over me. I mean, the, the, the intense color of the blue sky and, and the, the green and the white of the mountains, um, it, I actually kind of kind of chuckled to myself because I was like, this is just God's sandbox. He was just playing, having fun, making all of this. Um, the mountains to me looked like like a, a God-sized thumb had just been playing with, with clay, pressing down here and, and spreading up there. Uh, it, was, it was just amazing. And I share um, this, this short memory uh, for, for two reasons. One, because it was amazing and I want to share it. <laughs> um, the most amazing things in life are always worth praising and sharing. In fact, our enjoyment of them, you could say, is incomplete until we have done just that. C.S. Lewis makes this point in uh, Reflections on the Psalms. He says, 
I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight uh, at the other person's beauty is incomplete till it is expressed. Have you ever felt that? Uh, you delighted in someone or something or some experience, but you almost felt pent up until you could sing its praises to someone else. We're going to see something of this need to sing out praises in order to complete one's delight um, in our text this morning. That's where we'll be headed. Um, the second reason why I shared this, this memory about you know, being on this mountain um, is to draw your attention to how I felt inclined to describe it. Uh, for you to receive that experience in the fullest sense, I was uh, compelled to engage your imagination. I grasped for metaphors and images to draw you into the scene. Uh, to get there, you needed more than just propositions, more than just uh, truth claims about the area. You know, if I just, I, you know, if I just stopped at it, it was 14,000 feet, that's, that's not communicating the, 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 the full sense there. To feel something approaching what I felt, you needed something that could move deeper into you. Engaging your mind, yes, but going further in. And images, metaphors, and analogies can help to do that. So to complete my delight in something, uh, I need to, to, to praise it, to draw others into that delight as well. But to draw others into that delight and share it with me, I must engage your imagination. So we're going to see that being done in our text this morning also. So to be clear, this is where we're heading this morning towards profuse imaginative worship. A little bit of a different tone than the last time I was up here preaching. Uh, and just read 2 Samuel 13 and 14 and you'll know what I'm, I'm talking about if you weren't here. Um, we're going to be the very last uh, four chapters of uh, of, of Second Samuel here, so four chapters. So, all right, uh, let's 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 get into it. Um, the actual narrative of First and Second Samuel ended uh, last week in chapter twenty. The last chapters of the book here act as a sort of epilogue um, to the story, uh, a wrapping up in a sense of all that has happened, um, and actually as a a hinge to move the whole biblical uh, story forward. Um, in, in, this, in, in these chapters, there are two narratives, two lists, and two uh, poems, all from various times throughout David's life. And if you're wondering, how in the world are we going to cover all of this? Uh, well, buckle up. We might be here for a little bit. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, you know, we could actually, we could very easily take these passage by, by passage and, and preach through them over the course of a couple of weeks. But what we're going to do here um, is, is zoom out and see what God is saying through these patches, passages all taken together. Um, we're warranted to do that, actually, because these passages are arranged in a, in a very particular literary form called a, a chiasm, uh, C-H-I-A-S-M, chiasm. Or you could say they're arranged in a chiastic structure. And if, if you're like, oh no, this, is, this sounds, I'm not an English major, it's okay. Uh, I have a diagram here. Maybe this will help for all you visual learners of, of how this it kind, of, kind of looks. Um, <clears throat> this is also just a side note before I kind of explain this. Um, we often spend a lot of time defending or explaining that the Bible is true, which we definitely should. It's also beautiful. Um, and I, I hope that what this does is to kind of put that on display a little bit. So here's what I think is so cool and beautiful about this form. 
Um, essentially, you have uh, layers of parallel or mirrored passages uh, which end up directing you to the center. So if you were looking at this like in a commentary, uh, you would see it how it is over here on your, on your right side where it's uh, A mirrored by, uh, you would say A prime, B, B prime, C, C prime, or how I uh, uh, diagrammed it out over here with these kind of concentric circles. It, it's directing you to the center, to uh, the meat, to the, to, to the goodness. But as you read through, as you go from chapter 21 through to 22, um, and then you come out of that center, um, you encounter similar stories, those parallel stories, but from a fresh perspective. You have been reoriented to see things differently after you've encountered those central passages. And so it's just so beautiful to me that the Holy Spirit actually invites us on a kind of journey a journey in which we first see things um, externally and shallowly as we move through those layers. Uh, but then as we get to the center and then come out, he moves us to see things internally or spiritually or deeply. <clears throat> so we're going to go on that journey together this morning. In what I'm calling uh, phase one, we're moving from the outer layers uh, inward. We're going from layer one, layer two, layer three, and we're just going to talk through what we initially find in the text. But when we get to the third layer, the center, we'll be reoriented to see things differently. And so in what I'm calling phase two, we'll work our way back out um, with that fresh perspective. And I hope when we do that, it wakes something uh, up in us. Right. Does that make sense? All right, let's do this. Uh, layer one <coughs> includes two narratives. So the, the outer layers here, uh, two narratives that, that, that mirror or, or parallel each other in some important ways. So first we have the Gibeonite episode uh, in uh, 21, 1 through 14. We discover that during Saul's reign, uh, he actually murdered Gibeonites, a people whom Israel had covenanted, covenanted with in the name of God, Yahweh. Uh, you can find this story in Joshua 9, actually. <clears throat> Excuse me. And this is exceptionally serious, to have made this covenant, this agreement of peace, and to have gone against it and, and killed them. And God judges Israel to be complicit in this sin, and he disciplines the whole nation with a famine. God is merciful. He has appointed David as his mediator to the people to make things right between them and God to atone for this particular sin. So David, to make things right, hands over to the Gibeonites seven of Saul's sons who pay the penalty. Uh, he doesn't send over Mephibosheth, which if you've been here, uh, just go back and read it, and that's kind of important, but we don't have time to talk about it. Um, so justice was done. Atonement was accomplished. And the scene ends with us being told that the Lord responded to the plea for the land. Things in Israel are made right despite their sin. Uh, rain returns, the famine is ended. In the parallel passage in chapter 24, uh, what I'll call the census episode, uh, we find that God is angry with Israel, uh, presumably for some communal sin in Israel because you know, it's paralleling that first passage, so we can assume there's, again, some sin. And so God, uh, the text says, incites David, or maybe uh, urged would be a better word. Um, he urges David to take a census. Now, why would he do that? Why go count up all the people? Well, according to Exodus 30, when a census was taken, a half-shekel tax would also be collected. A uh, shekel is just like a, a denomination of, of, of money. 
And so God accepted this tax as a ransom for the people, as atonement for their sin, because it would go towards the upkeep of the tabernacle, the place of of God's presence among the people. So the census and tax uh, were geared towards reconciling the people with God, which is exactly what they need in this moment. But David fails to take up the tax. He does the census, and it seems like he's just more concerned with counting up his, his military strength. And he is in sin now himself. So since uh, atonement is not made and they remain in their guilt and sin, God sends judgment upon them in the form of an angel carrying pestilence, uh, a plague. He does, however, relent. And in uh, his mercy, he stops the destructive angel. And then David, encouraged by the Lord, or we could say urged again by the Lord, buys the land where the angel halted. He builds an altar there. And he offers sacrifices to God, making peace with God on behalf of the people. We're told again that God responded to the plea for the land and all was made right. What's also really interesting about this piece of land is that we're told in 1 Kings uh, that land would become the Temple Mount, where the temple was, was built. So God turns an occasion of sin into a place for his presence because he's awesome like that. That could be the sermon right there, but it's not. Um, but, but you see how that's actually the hinge moving the, the story forward. We move from David to um, the temple. <clears throat> so to kind of sum up, in, in this, uh, this first phase, so phase one, layer one, uh, what do we notice about both stories? Israel's communal sin is judged by God and atoned for by a redeemer, namely David. They are, as a whole community, guilty before God, and they need a representative to stand before God on their behalf to reconcile them and avert God's wrath upon sin. So that's our first reading of layer one. Israel's sin, judged by God and atoned for by a mediator. We could very easily do a whole uh, sermon on just one or both of those narratives. Um, there's, 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 there's so much there, but again, we're, we're zooming out and looking at the whole because this whole also says something really important. So we come, we, we, we go in um, to layer two, and we find two lists uh, naming many of David's mighty warriors and their unique contributions to preserving Israel by fighting off the Philistines. We have accounts of, of one guy you know, defeating 800 Philistines or, or, or 300 Philistines or fighting until uh, his, his sword was stuck to his hand. Um, those parts are pretty cool. A lot of that is just kind of a list of people, though, which might seem pretty plain and boring, but they're, they're, they're still very rich passages. And at the beginning of, of, of this section in uh, chapter 21, verse 15, uh, we read something important here. It says, David grew weary, whether because of of old age or simply because of his constant running and moving and, and fighting uh, life that, that finally caught up with him, he's weary. And he's almost taken out by a Philistine giant. Because as powerful as David is, there is only one who does not faint or grow weary. So David's men swear to him, verse 17, you shall no longer go out with us to battle lest you quench the lamp of Israel. What does, what does that mean, quench the lamp of Israel? Well, it means that David, as God's anointed one, as Israel's king, is the the light, the spark, the impulse for Israel's life. For him to perish would mean the nation would would wither and be overcome. So the men step up to protect God's anointed and ensure that the Philistines are driven out and David's reign extended. Uh, 
I wish we could talk a little bit more about this passage. There's some little fun little notes in there. There's, there's this Philistine giant who's unnamed but has 24 uh, fingers and toes. I think that's supposed to be intimidating, but I just think it's funny. Um, some, of, some of David's mighty men, we have Shema, the defender of beans. Uh, it's really, it's, he defends a lentil field, but defender of beans sounds funnier, <coughs> I think. Uh, and then there's Benaiah, the destroyer of handsome men. You just have to read it. It's great. Uh, uh, the, but the point here, uh, besides, this, uh, besides all those little fun notes, is that David's men are some bad dudes, and they're taking care of some bad guys the Philistines. Um, What we see in this layer is that the mediator, David, is both empowered and protected to push back the Philistines, keeping Israel safe and secure. So the mediator is empowered and protected to push back the Philistines. So David, by God's grace, in in our first layer, atones uh, for Israel's sin and averts judgment. In our second layer, David, by human assistance, drives out uh, the attacking forces from Israel. So what does David have to say about all of this. I love how we're being drawn into uh, this third layer, drawn to the center. I think that's what's so beautiful about this this structure. And what we see in uh, the third layer is David erupting into deep imaginative praise. Not about himself or what he's done, but about God, about Yahweh, the eternally faithful one. Uh, One commentator says, David's history could be narrated as that of a great and powerful king. But this chapter, however, chapter 22, which we'll read here in a second, is concerned that it should be understood as the action of a great and powerful God. Right? You could tell David's story about a great and powerful king, but he wants to tell his story about a great and powerful God. So let's go ahead and get this point clear about, about layer three here, the center. Yahweh delivers and makes a covenant with David. That's what that center is about, Yahweh's action, God's actions. So I want to look at that in a little more detail in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 22. I want to read some of this this song from David. It's it's often called called his song of deliverance. Um, I just want to read it and and talk through it and, and see here how David decides to communicate what his life is all about. So we can start in uh, verses 2 and 3. David said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. First, we note how David like splutters to name God. He, he grasps for metaphors that adequately light up the imagination to give us a sense of God's greatness. Could he have said, God is reliable, God keeps you safe? Sure. But he's allowing us to feel that by conjuring up images of, of boulders and mountains, fortresses, shields, and, and, and all those, those images. And so what we can do and what we should do is allow those images to fill up your imagination. Uh, 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 Allow your mind's eye to to see and be drawn into those images. Uh, Notice also how personal this is for David. God is not just a rock. He says he's my rock. He's my refuge. He's my savior. David's speaking from experience because he knows exactly who is behind all of his achievements. Someone infinitely greater than himself who yet still loves him personally. So David can say this is 
my God, my Savior. So this is how he then continues um, in, in verse four, going to verse seven. David says, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. That's how definite of a statement that is. I am saved from my enemies. For the ways of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of shale entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. So David knows that his God is the kind of God that can be called upon in distress. Even for one falling into the pit of death, this rock, this God, seals up that abyss. He hears David's cries and responds. So David continues in, in verse 8, and I love how this is, this is how God answers David's call. <clears throat> then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy, thick clouds, a, ga a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from on high, he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me. For they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. You see God answer so mightily here, don't you? The text says, uh, he, he reels and rocks the earth. He rides on thick black clouds with, with fire and lightning before him. His voice resounds as thunder. The sea divides before him. What is David doing here? I mean, in some ways, doesn't this sound kind of like a, a, a mean and, and, and nasty God? Or he's angry and fire's coming from him? I don't think that's the case at all. And, and here's, here's, uh, here's why. It, it reminds me, actually, of an experience I had when I was eight or nine or so. Um, I was playing uh, street hockey with some neighborhood kids. This is when Mighty Ducks was a big thing, so everyone played street hockey. Um, and one kid who didn't like me very much uh, whacked me in the face with his stick. Right, he acted like he was shooting the puck, and he just whoo, whacked right back in my nose. Uh, with blood pouring from my nose, I ran home and tried explaining to my parents what happened. And you might say, the earth reeled and rocked as my dad marched out uh, to find the punk kid who had harmed his son. Um, this is what I think David is actually d d describing. He's, he, well, he's actually recalling imagery from the Exodus uh, when God descended on, on Mount Sinai. And while it is a terrifying scene uh, there and you know, here in this song, this God of fury is acting on behalf of his children, of his child, David. 
So David can then say uh, about this God that he rescues me from my strong enemy. Such is the love of a father, a powerful father. He's the God who, who comes in rolling with, with fire and thunder, but he does that because he cares for you and he wants to take care of you. So David is again completing his joy in the Lord by praising him, using this rich imaginative language to draw us in and share in his delight. Uh, David continues his poem of praise and prayer by recounting uh, the ways of the Lord, how and why God acts as he does. So this is uh, verses uh, 21 to 31. David says, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have, not, uh, and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him and kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely, and with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. You hear the echo of Hannah's song? For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. A few things we want to draw out from that passage. Um, first, okay, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. Come on, David. We've, we've, we've looked at the life of David a little bit enough that we know that his hands are not clean, right? All I have to do is say Bathsheba, uh, and we know that, that David has seriously messed up. So how can he say this? How can he say that, that he's, he's, he's been kept clean? Uh, plus, <clears throat> doesn't this just sound like works righteousness? Uh, be good and God will reward you. Uh, I, that's, that's not quite what's happening here. So on, on the one hand, um, uh, one scholar who knows Hebrew a lot better than I do, he points out uh, that the, 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 the language here is actually talking not about uh, sinless perfection, but life direction. David is using language to say that, that his, his life in general has been directed towards God. And on the whole, we have seen that this is true. Uh, when David does mess up, he confesses and repents and, run back, and, and runs back to God. So generally speaking, he can say that he has kept the ways of the Lord uh, and followed his statutes. But uh, two, he can also claim to be righteous and blameless in the same way that Abraham could make that claim or that we today can make that claim by faith. The, the saints of the Old Testament were saved the same as the saints of the New, faith in God. So David, by faith, stood within the covenant of God. And those within the covenant, within this special relationship with him, are declared righteous by God. So David, knowing that his righteousness only comes from God, can praise God for dealing with him according to his righteousness. I, I, I love this. Uh, because God is glorified in this psalm because he is seen as both the giver of righteousness and the giver of the reward for righteousness. It is all 100% about what he is doing. 
And who can be declared righteous? Well, this text tells us, it's telling us the ways of the Lord, um, the merciful, the blameless, the pure, and most importantly, the humble. Anyone who takes refuge in the Lord is saved. David, like I said, has picked up Hannah's song and he's made it his own. So who, who are those that the Lord raises up? Those who have lowered themselves, who don't think too highly of themselves, who can look at their life and say, I am what I am only by the millions of graces that have come upon me by God, by my family, by my community. This theme has been all throughout First and Second Samuel that God, that God exalts the, the, the humble and brings low the proud. The, the proud. And it's actually a, a, a theme woven throughout the entire scriptures. And again, we see it in this song. And then in this passage, uh, we see that uh, if David is the lamp of Israel, he knows who his lamp is, who his, where his spark and where his life comes from. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. David continues in this song with many more words about uh, how God answers his call and, and fills him with the power to accomplish victory on behalf of Israel. He blesses the Lord again and again, uh, ending finally in verse 51, uh, which says this, great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. And so we come to the very last words, uh, one last song of praise from David in chapter 23, one through seven. In essence, David, David picks up where that song left off and he praises God for his covenantal promise to establish his throne forever. David's offspring, he knows, will be the kind that the people experience as a warm dawn or a fresh rain. Again, that, that imaginative language to draw us in. When we get down to it, <clears throat> these songs um, aren't actually just about what Yahweh, what God did for David. We're seeing that God is at the very center of everything and that he is powerfully establishing his kingdom for all time. David is a critical part of that plan, but it's even bigger than him. The story goes all the way back to Genesis when humanity corrupted the world in sin and when God decided to restore it through Abraham. It continues into uh, Exodus when God delivered his people from slavery, right? D David recalls the Exodus because he knows that this is part of a larger story. <clears throat> the story runs into the promised land and Joshua's conquest, right? The, the, the Gibeonite episode reminds us of that. This is an ongoing plan of God. And it finally arrives in David, God's anointed king, to bring his peace on earth. But when we arrive at this song of deliverance and David's last song, we recognize that they don't just center around what God has done. It references back to his faithfulness in the distant past, and in David's past, yeah, but the poetic prayers push forward into the future, what God will be doing, what he's going to do. He will continue to work through David's offspring. God's deliverance and his covenant making spills forward into the future, and as we are centered in the gracious acts of God, we recognize that his gracious acts, uh, his plan to establish his kingdom, have actually been spilling out all along. They spill out back into the layers of our epilogue. So as we reevaluate those uh, layers in this light, we come at it with this fresh perspective, that God is actually at the center of something 
even larger, establishing his kingdom. Because we have been reoriented to see um, this story in, this, in, in the light of a gracious God working out his plan of establishing his kingdom, we now see in, in you know, kind of phase two of our reading uh, that layer three, that the center there, is all about this God and this kingdom. A kingdom that God is making for the humble through the work of his Messiah, his anointed one. It's for the humble. So first, we must, ask we must ask ourselves, how much of my life is really centered on me? Right, because God's kingdom is, is, is massively large. It's, it's infinite, and yet it manages to be too small for your ego. So ask yourself, do I think of my time as absolutely my own? Uh, my finances, my possessions? When I make my schedule, am I thinking solely about what I want or what I need to do? Have I made my desires the ruling factor of my life? See, all of us are being discipled by a culture that says to be happy, to live authentically, do whatever is in your heart to do. This, for many of us, is just our default way of living, and it's antithetical to the kingdom of God. It puts you at the center instead of him. His kingdom belongs to as Jesus would say in Matthew 5, just again, continuing what scripture has echoed, uh, his kingdom belongs to the poor in spirit and those uh, persecuted for righteousness' sake. And this is actually a blessing because you get to lay down your striving. You get to lay down the burden of building a name for yourself. You get to lay down the unending and never fully satisfying journey of seeking pleasure to lay down your sin and brokenness. And then God says to you in that moment, you're broken, you're a sinner, you're exhausted in your striving, you're not enough, good, because I am. Come enter my rest. That's what God says to us. But remember that we need a king to lead the humble into God's kingdom of peace, an anointed one in the line of David. So where does the, narr the narr narrative of First and Second Samuel ultimately climax, it's actually not in these two books. It's in Jesus Christ, the ultimate son of David, who, uh, he's the ultimate son because he's the son of God, who showed us the road to exaltation through humiliation, who died on the cross to forgive us of our sins so that we could have life with God. If you've never meditated on or memorized uh, Philippians 2, 6 through 11, you should. We could have it up here uh, every week for every sermon just about because it's that central to the whole biblical story. And I, want it, I want us to read it here. Um, it says this, it's talking about Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is, that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Isn't that the kind of God you want to humble yourself to? <laughs> right? The kind who would come and humble himself for us? Maybe it's just me. I think so. <laughs> um, when we move back up, up the layers here of this epilogue, come back to the list of David's mighty men. Um, this is what we see with our new orientation. 
about God's kingdom. We see that God's kingdom is a kingdom of peace from which he roots out wickedness. That's how we view that with our new orientation. Actually, even within those lists, we are told multiple times um, that even though these warriors were the ones fighting, it was the Lord who brought about a great victory. He is the one driving out the Philistines, the forces of evil that impinge upon God's people and, and bringing peace and security and flourishing to his people. He's the one doing it. And this is great cause for rejoicing because it means that when we as the church feel attacked from the outside, fear and panic should never overtake us. Confidence and calm should describe our way of being. Why? Because Yahweh is our God and he has proven himself faithful and true throughout thousands of years of history. I mean, Jesus specifically declared, it is finished. It is done. The battle is done. So, at least for our purposes today, I don't care if you think the they that are attacking us, that are kind of the modern day Philistines, are Christian nationalists, LGBTQ activists, New Age mystics, or Satan himself, stop freaking out. <laughs> right? You can be aware of spiritual danger, and actually, some of you need to be more aware. You need to wake up to the attack of the enemy. But you can be aware, you can be cautious and critical and concerned and not act like my irrational three-year-old. <laughs> Why are we like that? Seriously, by the, by, by the panicky, fear-mongering fear reaction many of us have, you'd think we didn't serve a God who literally laughs at the nations and powers that plot against him. That's Psalms 2. That's what it tells us. He laughs at them. He is the Alpha and Omega, the one who has written the story from beginning to end and works all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Evil doesn't win. That's what the cross declares for all time. So critical, concerned, aware, yes. Fearful, freaking out, no. Uh, unless I'm misremembering, Jesus told Peter that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. Come on, somebody. It's going to get Pentecostal up in here soon. <laughs> uh, as we move back out to the first layer, <clears throat> we remember uh, that the wickedness is not just out there. It's in here. We can focus so much on the outward attack of the enemy that we forget sin begins in the heart of each of us. Where's the amens on that one? <laughs> the Gibeonite and, and, and census episodes remind us that Israel was itself full of sin and guilty before God, rightfully incurring his wrathful judgment. But God is faithful to send an atoning mediator to make us right with God. His kingdom is a kingdom of forgiveness, rooting out our wickedness, the evil that springs out of our own hearts. Except we have a better mediator than David. Uh, we have Jesus, whose atoning sacrifice forgives all of our sins once for all. Right, there's so many scriptures that point to this fact. I think Colossians 1, 19 through 22 is, is one of them. It says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So you were alienated from him, hostile, evil, evil deeds, and instead he says, in Christ, you're holy, you're blameless. Your sins are atoned for. 
here's where this text is um, especially beautiful, I think. And we're kind of winding down here. And, and Nathan, you can go ahead and, and come back up. It's so especially beautiful because after taking us through these layers to the center, where we find that, that God is the center, the, the, the main actor and the author of his plan to save mankind and establish his kingdom, and then after taking us back out those layers with a renewed sense of his kingdom, where do we land? Right back at the center. Phase three of our reading is this. Our joy in God and his kingdom is completed in worship. Right? It's coming down to the end of David's life and, and how does he feel is the best way to respond to what God has done and is doing? To sing about it. He just writes a song because his joy is incomplete until that has, has happened. There's something pent up in him that's, that's just waiting to burst forth and declare the praises of God. So yes, this text in large part is a call to reorient our lives around the kingship of God. Put him first, seek his kingdom. The main character in your story is God. It's not you. And this is for our good because he is a God who is powerfully establishing his kingdom. He has sent David's promised Messiah king. He delivers the humble and broken. He forgives sin. He defeats the enemy. He's, he's ushering in his peace. And as David recognized himself, he does all of this for you personally. You can say with David, he is my God. He is my rock. He is my savior because he is that for each of us personally. It's not just that he is a powerful God. He is. He's a powerful God, but he's also a personal God, and he loves you, and he died for you, and he is your rock, and he is your refuge, and he is your safe place, so run to him. Run to him, and once you recognize that, and you place your faith, you place your life in the hands of our wonderful God, what do you do with that? The saints throughout the ages have shown us just as Moses sang when Israel was delivered from Egypt, just as Hannah sang when her barrenness was restored, and just as David sang when he was re rescued, we echo their song of deliverance. Just as David appropriated the song of Moses and Hannah into his own context, we're allowed to do the same thing. We are to enter into these prayers and make them our own. And we're allowed to borrow from and expand upon the language there with our own imagination, forming our own songs to the Lord and inviting others to pray with us because of what he has done in us. And when we do, we find that our joy in him is brought to completion. We find that we are even more deeply satisfied in him. We find that the peace for our souls that we've been longing for all along is is brought to fruition. We don't want that to be, to be pent up. Actually, first I should back up and say, first you have to recognize that God has saved you, that he, he does love you, that he is your savior. And then when you grasp that, you need to express it. You, you need to, to sing that out. And, and there's so much joy that comes from that. So where did I say at the beginning we were headed? Towards profuse, imaginative worship. I pray that that's how we respond right now. So we, we respond in worship first with communion. If you would take out uh, your, your communion, the bread and, and the juice here. If you don't uh, have, have one of these and you need one, just kind of raise your hand and we'll have some, some ushers come and help you out. This is such a beautiful act of worship because we have something, something tangible here uh, reminding us of what Jesus did for us, of how he uh, 
atoned for our sins and fought back the enemy in one act. Right? It took Jesus one act of dying and then arising again so that your sins individually would be forgiven and that the enemy would be destroyed forever, right? On the cross, it says that he makes a public spectacle of the enemy. He's de- the, the enemy is defeated. And so we take this, remembering what Christ has done, and then longing for the completion of what he has done at the end of time. So would you uh, stand with me as we take communion together? So this is an, an act of worship. This is an act of celebration. And, and if you haven't placed your faith in Christ, I invite you to do that. You can do that. And then when, and then when, you, when you take this, there's, there's, there's a deep meaning behind it because you have been saved. You've been brought into fellowship with Christ so that his broken body, you can actually say, it's been broken for me. He's forgiven my sins. So I, I invite you to give your life to the Lord. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Take this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. And then Jesus took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for you, the blood of my new covenant with you. So we take this and remember his sacrifice for us. And we always say after we take communion, what's, what's our response? It's worship, right? And it seems even more fitting in light of this text that we sing, right? Because what did David do? Again, when he saw that God was, was, was for him, that had saved him, he sang out. So let's sing together. And, 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 and don't just say the words, don't just sing the words, but, but step into this song and let it be from your heart, from your, your very depths as you sing this out. Let's worship together, church. I hope it's been on nothing less in Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but only trust in Jesus' name. Christ alone, cornerstone, seems to hide his face I rest on his unchanging grace in every high and stormy gale my anchor holds within the veil my anchor holds Within the veil 
Christ alone, cornerstone, the weak made strong, and the Savior's love through the storm. He is Lord, Lord of all. shall come with trumpet sound Oh, they are there and Him be found Rest in His righteousness alone For us to stand before the throne Oh, cry alone cornerstone the weak made strong the Savior's love through the storm He is Lord Lord oh Christ alone oh Christ alone praises you delight in us which is incredible but we delight in you we delight in you because of what you have done for us you have have brought us into your covenantal love and an unending unbreakable special relationship with you we get to experience your love and your peace and your joy even now even today and so we get to sing about that because our joy in you is incomplete until we get to so we sing and we worship you and we, we, we ask that our whole lives would be an act of worship to you, that it's not just that we would sing in this moment right here, but, but tomorrow and the next day and the next day, we would just pour out our praise for you, that, that we would meditate on, on the, the beauty of your kindness towards us and express that back to you and find the joy that comes when we get to do that. And that in our, 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 our worshiping of you, that that, that would overflow into our, our relationships and into uh, our, our encounters with other people. And we would invite them in to the joy that we have in you. Empower us to do that. Fill us with your spirit so that we would be a joyful, worshipful people full of the spirit of God. Lord, we thank you for what you have done and what you are gonna to continue to do in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.